Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? All right, way back. In 1961, a guy named Leonard Kleinrock wrote a paper titled Information Flow in Large Communication Nets. And a lot of folks point to this paper as laying out the basics for what would become networked computer communications, which in turn would evolve into the ARPANET project where the the basic rules for computer-to-computer communication were established. And then you had things like radio-based networks, you had satellite-based networks, you had these all kind of coming together. And from that, we then get an evolution into the internet, which is the network of networks. And that really got its start around 1983, as different networks could finally communicate with one another, not just within themselves. And it was because of the establishment of, of common protocols. Now, many of us out in the, the real world 
away from all these different research centers and government facilities and things like that, a lot of us remain blissfully ignorant of the internet until you got up to the early 90s and the launch of the World Wide Web. Uh, the web was an easier concept for most people to grasp than the larger idea of the internet. Because you could look at the web and you could say, oh, it's like a magazine, but it's on your computer. It also wasn't that different from online service providers like AOL, where you weren't connected to an internet at large, but you were connecting into a single network. And for a lot of people, the web and the internet were synonymous, right? It was the, the, the web was the internet. Uh, over time, I would say the general public came to understand what the internet was, at least sort of. Uh, I mean, there's still people who do refer to the web as the internet and the internet is the web and that's all there is to it. That's not the case. The web sits on top of the internet, uh, but the internet is more than just the web. But then let's uh, get up to the late 90s. That's when there was this guy working at Procter & Gamble who had an idea and he proposed using RFID chips on components and products for the purposes of tracking stuff as that stuff moves through a supply chain. So an example of this might be for a microchip that's going to go into a larger product. Uh, maybe the box that holds the little microchip has an RFID chip on it so that you can easily scan it as it goes from one point in the supply chain to the next. That way you can keep track of where everything is throughout the entire system. And uh, that was a, a neat idea, right? It's a great way to try and keep an eye and monitor a supply chain, give a logistics manager the capability to know what's going on at any given minute and respond to it, perhaps make changes if there is a delay at one point of the supply chain. Great idea. But, you know, this guy wanted to be able to convince his superiors to, uh, to buy into this idea. So the guy's name is uh, Kevin Ashton. And Kevin Ashton thought he needs kind of a, a sexy phrase to get his idea sold to these, these higher-ups, to get them to buy into his vision. So he called the approach the Internet of Things. Now, Ashton was allegedly just trying to get higher-ups to support his idea for including RFID tags, and those tags wouldn't magically send information on their own to a network. You'd have to scan them and everything. But it wouldn't take long for this basic concept to evolve. And in fact, there were previous cases where people had uh, connected you know, sensors to certain devices and then connected those to a network so that they could monitor uh, a device remotely. There was ones where people did that with vending machines, for example, so that they would know when the vending machine was running low on specific stuff. That's that's or in some cases <laughs> so that the person who had installed it would know, oh, I'm not going to bother walking down there. They're out of Dr. Pepper. So I'm not even going to bother leaving my desk because I know there's no Dr. Pepper in the vending machine downstairs. But it didn't take long for this basic concept to evolve into something more uh, ambitious. And I think it's fascinating that the phrase Internet of Things actually predates the consumer smartphone era by nearly a decade, because I think for most people, myself included, that, that their awareness of the Internet of Things came after 
smartphones first started to really become popular among the general population. I point to the iPhone launch in 2007 as the beginning of the smartphone era. Obviously, there were smartphones before the iPhone. Apple did not invent the smartphone. But smartphones were kind of a niche product that were mostly just used by business leaders, executives, that kind of thing, and not so much the average person, but Apple changed all that. And then subsequently, once we were all adjusting to the idea of being able to access stuff online through our phones in a way that was actually, you know, fun to do and useful, because if you ever had a basic cell phone before the smartphone era, you know that if you did have any web-enabled services on there, it was not good. Like it just didn't, it didn't work well. It wasn't easy to navigate in. The iPhone changed all that. Well, for me, at least my awareness of smartphones came first. And then I later became aware of this idea of internet of things. But of course the internet of things concept had been going pretty strong already for almost a decade. Anyway, as time would go on, we would see more folks experiment with internet connectivity In everything from components, like simple sensors or actuators, which could go into larger systems. So you make a tiny part that is meant to go into something else. You make that one part capable of connecting to a network. And then maybe the rest of it also can, or maybe it can. Uh, All the way up to more complicated integrations where the entire system is meant to be internet capable. Stuff like smart TVs right? These days, you can outfit your home with numerous smart devices that all connect to a home network uh, or the internet at large. And then there's also a growing use of internet-connected devices out in the, the world, just outside of your home. Everything from cars to city infrastructure, security cameras, all sorts of stuff are all connected into the internet, creating this massive internet of things. Now, throughout all that time, There have been security experts who have cautioned companies and consumers about the Internet of Things because the Internet of Things does come with a a lot of benefits. You can see a lot of really compelling use cases for the Internet of Things, whether it's just keeping an eye on things to make sure that everything's working properly to creating more convenient and delightful experiences. But Any network-connected device can potentially serve as an entry point for bad actors, for for malicious hackers. So devices can be compromised, and that might allow a hacker to get a a foothold into, say, your, your home network and search for ways to get greater access so that they can do all sorts of stuff from stealing information to turning your network or devices on your network into agents that they use and things like a botnet, Uh, or they may use it to do stuff like mine for cryptocurrency. It's nothing like having, you know, your, your web server crash because some hacker has compromised tens of thousands of internet connected doorbells and then directed all those doorbells to ping your web server. That's something that can happen. Like those botnets that can do distributed denial of service attacks or DDoS attacks, it doesn't have to be a computer. Like I I often think of computers when I think of DDoS attacks, but the truth is 
any network connected device capable of sending a ping to a server can potentially be part of a botnet. So that includes a lot of devices we connect to networks that are not computers or smartphones. And if those devices don't have the proper security enabled on them, or if we're really lazy and we don't bother to update things like default passwords and usernames, we can start to create the opportunity for some pretty serious mischief. Then, of course, there are the tens of thousands of devices that have been connected to the internet, and then subsequently the companies responsible for the hardware or the services that run on the hardware have stopped supporting them or completely gone out of business. This happens all the time, right? We've got all these different companies that have created Internet of Things type devices or components for devices. And then the company gets acquired and then effectively services are no longer supported for some things. Well, if those devices are still connected to networks and they're no longer actively serving a purpose, they could potentially act as an entry point for hackers as well, right? Especially if they use default usernames and passwords, default login credentials, because you no longer have a company that's actually actively pushing out updates. So there's no hope of someone sending out, say, a firmware update that requires you to change your device's login credentials. So if you've got these orphaned devices that are still connected to networks, they can serve as a, a point of entry for hackers, uh, the, these, these forgotten Internet of Things devices. Uh, in some cases, forgotten can also just mean that, oh, you, you connected this thing to your network, you forgot you did it, you haven't used it in ages, it's still technically connected and still active, but you're not like constantly using it. Uh, that can potentially become a, a vulnerability. This is really one of the big problems with Internet of Things in general, is that the Internet of Things as a concept depends heavily upon companies that create Internet of Things products and services remaining solvent and actively supporting them. And if they stop supporting them, that the rest of us take the effort to remove those devices from our networks because they now uh, constitute a threat to our security. That's something that we're not very good at doing yet. I'll explain a bit about, you know, some examples of of where that all went wrong after we come back from this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. So I thought I would chat about some of the instances where hackers were able to exploit Internet of Things devices. Uh, This isn't to warn everyone away from IoT. It's rather to remind ourselves that good security goes beyond resetting our router passwords or our modem login credentials, and that it goes beyond being savvy with our computer security and and avoiding things like phishing attacks and that sort of stuff. All of that is important. And I think it still remains true that in your typical system, the weakest point is usually the people, not the, not the systems, not the components. But that doesn't mean that all components are bulletproof. And if there are vulnerabilities and the hacker community learns about it, that information can spread quickly in hacker circles, and it may not get to anyone who can do anything about it until it's too late. You know, anytime we're talking about adding components to a network, we need to think about security. Uh, Do we? No. I mean, I've been guilty of this too. I've added stuff to my home network and then later thought, oh, you know what? This thing that I just logged into, like I, I connected to my home network, it has a default username and password that I can't change. And I bet there are people out there who know what the default username and password happens to be for this particular device. I should just disconnect this from our network and not use it. And that's what I've 
done. Sometimes not immediately. Sometimes it's only after reflection. Luckily, as far as I know anyway, I've never been the target of uh, a, a true intrusion, but it's not because I was careful enough. It's because I was lucky. And you can't count on that. And I'm saying this out loud so that I remember I can't count on that. So yeah, if we if we don't take the right steps, it's not like I would say we're inviting trouble, but we're certainly going to be underprepared if trouble happens to find us. So let's begin with a big instance of a problem that affected not just the Internet of Things uh, category of technology, but IoT is certainly part of it. And it requires a bit of an explanation. So one thing that a lot of different systems, including a lot of IoT devices, tend to do is log. Uh, it's, it's called logging. And now I don't mean that IoT devices are all putting on flannel and singing about being a lumberjack and that's okay. No. In this case, logging means keeping a record of activity. So there are lots of systems out there that log stuff. And that makes sense, right? There's some systems that are designed to log something. That's all they're meant to do. Like, let's say that you've got some environmental sensors set up in an area. They might be intended to log changes in things like temperature. Well, that's the whole purpose of that device. But even beyond that, in systems that aren't primarily about logging, they typically do have some form of logging capability. So, you have internet devices that are part of larger systems that are tracking changes, or you've got uh, a, a logging system that logs performance information so you know how well your system is performing. Is it running hot? Is it efficient? You have error logging systems, so that way whenever anything goes uh, askew, if something does not perform to expectations, you get a, a logged event, so that way a, a technician can later go back and see what the heck happened? How can we fix it and make sure it doesn't happen again so that it doesn't interrupt service or worse? Um, you can log security status, all sorts of things like this. Well, it's standard, essentially, to have some means of logging errors. Because if you don't have a way of logging errors, then when something goes wrong, it becomes like a murder mystery to figure out what the heck happened. Did it, in fact, go wrong? Or did the end user misuse the technology and misunderstand it? So you want to have that logging feature to, to be able to diagnose problems much more quickly and then get to a solution. One set of logging tools, uh, which include like a, a, a data set, a library set that's, that's heavily used in throughout technology, comes from a company called Apache. Jump on it. Apache used, uh, uh, is used by a lot of high-profile systems, like Cloudflare uses uh, Apache. And Cloudflare, among other things, provides protections against denial of service attacks. Um, but it's also used by stuff like Steam and Twitter. And it had a tool called uh, Log4j. And what wasn't really known was that, at least as far back as 2013, there was a vulnerability in Log4j that would allow for remote code execution, or RCE. And that is just what it sounds like. It's a feature that lets someone run code on a point on a system uh, from a remote location. So you can control a system as if you were right there with full access. Maybe not full access, but with access. 
So you might actually build this into a system on purpose, right? You might want to have remote operators able to access a system, but it can also be a vulnerability. Like it could be something that you've overlooked where someone has figured out a way to execute code on a system that otherwise they should not have access to. And that was the problem with log4j. And you might wonder what specifically was going on? How did this happen? What was happening on a technical level? So I'll try to explain it from a high high viewpoint. Uh, The log4j tool uses a Java naming and directory interface or JNDI. So someone who was trying to take advantage of this vulnerability in log4j would send a special HTTP or even an HTTPS based request to log an event. And they would target a server and they would send this uh, this request, which would include in the header a JNDI request. So um, the target server would receive this and likely log this request as an error using log4j. Log4j, while logging the error, sees that there's this JNDI request in the header of the request that was sent to them, right? And it's so essentially it reaches out to the server that sent the request in the first place, the hacker's server. So this is kind of like someone saying, hey, can I help you? I see that you're having some issues. Only it's a trap, as Admiral Akbar would say. The server would then direct this request from the, the target. You know, the, the target is saying, hey, how can I help? The server would direct that request to a directory that would contain malicious code, which when the log4j system would continue this this process would activate that malicious code, which would then run on the log4j target system um, and would create a backdoor access point for hackers. So if you've seen Thor Ragnarok, this is the classic get help routine. That's essentially what the log4j uh, vulnerability allowed hackers to do was it was like saying uh, uh, something has gone wrong Log4j is looking into it and in the process gets trapped into running this malicious code. Didn't work all the time because obviously the server that you're targeting had to rely on Log4j in the first place for this this vulnerability to be relevant. But this vulnerability in Log4j persisted in several versions. Uh, So every time Apache was sending out a new version of Log4j, this vulnerability was kind of baked in and no one knew about it. So it just, it stayed there version after version. And apparently no one at Apache had noticed it and no one outside of Apache had alerted them to it. And that changed on December 9th, 2021. Uh, So remember this vulnerability may have been around since like 2013. And it wasn't until 2021 that someone, someone uh, outside the hacker community figured this out. And that was when a, a, a security engineer named Chen Xiaojun, who worked at the Chinese company Alibaba Cloud, sent Apache a notification saying, hey, Log4j has this critical vulnerability in it. So another side note, Alibaba Cloud actually got into hot water for that because the Chinese government was mightily miffed that they were not informed of the vulnerability before uh, Apache was told. And that sounds a little scary. I mean, maybe they were upset because they wanted the opportunity to address the vulnerability in their own systems because Log4j is used so widely. 
And maybe that's why they were thinking, well, because you told them now there's this window where attackers could attack our systems. Or maybe it was implying that the Chinese government would have preferred to keep the vulnerability secret and potentially use it as an exploit themselves. But whatever, the Log4j tool was uh, is used all over the world. And this vulnerability affected any system that used the specific versions of Log4j that contain this vulnerability. Uh, even if those systems were just using Log4j to log errors so that technicians could diagnose system problems. Anyway, once word got out, there was a scramble to patch systems that were using affected versions of Log4j. And if you were tuned into network security late in 2021 and early in 2022, you probably heard about the log shell exploit. That was the exploit that would allow someone to penetrate a system by exploiting this vulnerability uh, and have it run whatever code they wanted. And it was and is a huge issue. In fact, uh, hackers have exploited the log shell vulnerability to create botnets. Early ones included were one called Mirai, which was perpetuated in various ways, but the log4j exploit was a big one, and another one called Mushtik. Uh, and when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Mirai plus some other, some other IoT vulnerability issues that we've seen. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. So, back in 2016, the Mirai botnet consisted of thousands of IoT devices, and it was perpetuated in a couple of different ways. And one of them was through malware. And when a computer got infected by this particular kind of malware, it would immediately start a search for IoT devices that could also be infected and added to the botnet. So what it was essentially doing was making a computer uh, detect IoT devices and then use the default usernames and passwords that manufacturers had set for these devices to try and add them to the botnet. And because it can sometimes be impossible to change the default login credentials, like there just isn't a way, at least not an easy way for the average person to make those changes, or a lot of people just don't bother to do it, even if there is a way to make those changes, that meant that these devices were readily available to be added to botnets. And uh, stuff like DVR players were compromised and joined this botnet army. And the botnet, the Mirai botnet launched a massive DDoS attack in 2016. Uh, you might even remember it. This was the one that that did some pretty big uh, damage. Not, I guess damage is the wrong word, but it definitely brought stuff down for several hours. So that included services like Reddit, Twitter, Netflix, uh, outlets like CNN and The Guardian were affected, among others. According to A10 Networks, the hacker group Charming Kitten out of Iran uh, leaned on the log shell log4j exploit we were talking about before the break. They used that same exploit to launch attacks against Israeli servers, including ones belonging to the Israeli government. And while companies have been lo- rolling out patches to their products that feature log4j, uh, the fact that this was a widely dispersed tool and library set means it's very tricky to resolve. Like, imagine it's it's something that's been spread throughout the world and then years later you find out, oh shoot, it's got this fatal flaw in it that we didn't know about and everybody's got one now. How do you get the message out so that anyone affected can take steps to get rid of that thing? That's kind of where we are now. I mean, it's, it's the big companies started rushing out patches right away. Uh, and these were companies that had built Log4j into lots and lots of different products. But smaller companies may still be struggling to fix that. And, you know, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a tough situation. I, I liken it to being aboard an enormous ship 
that has thousands of tiny holes in the hull. You, you're patching holes and patching holes and patching holes, and there always seems to be more. Uh, that's kind of where we're at now. And in case you're wondering, like the compromised systems, some of them are engaged in these sort of DDoS botnet, botnet attacks, and some of them are being put to, you know, mine cryptocurrency. So yeah, fun times. Uh, while there are steps that companies and even network administrators can go through to help eliminate risk with Log4j, it requires a lot of effort. And for any systems out there that are orphaned or that are part of an organization that just lacks the resources to address problems like this, it means there remains vulnerable points within various systems and hackers will continue to probe for them. But let's talk about an IoT device that made it was made to give you greater security, uh, but in fact, it brought with it a big security vulnerability. So a company called Trend Micro uh, has a, a product called the Home Network Security Station. This device connects to home routers, and what it's, what it's supposed to do is scan for activity. Uh, it's supposed to alert you to any possible network intrusions. Uh, so in other words, if someone's trying to gain unauthorized access to your network, it's supposed to give you an alert. It's supposed to give you a centralized point where you can change access settings on network devices. So you can, you know, like revoke permissions for devices so that they can no longer access your network, that kind of stuff, which is legit a useful tool to have in your arsenal. However, when they first started shipping this product, uh, it had some bugs in it that created potential attack vectors. Some researchers at Cisco Talos uncovered these problems. There were three of them. So one was the one of the components inside the device used a hard-coded password. And, and as that phrase suggests, this is when you've got a predetermined password that's hard-coded into a system at some level. And, you know, systems are made up of lots of different components. Sometimes just an individual component can have a hard-coded password, and that alone can be a vulnerability. Because if a hacker knows or can guess that hard-coded password, they can potentially first exploit that component and then perhaps escalate that into getting control of more of the system. This process of a hacker establishing an attack point and then using that to gain more purchase is called privilege escalation in network security settings. The goal is to obtain the highest level of access across the broadest spectrum of systems that you can. And it all starts somewhere, including these smaller components that have a hard-coded password associated with them. This, by the way, is why it is a good idea to change your default password on your various devices if you can, uh, because there are hackers out there who just maintain enormous databases of login credentials for lots of different components, network components. Anyway, the researchers at Cisco Talos found, in addition to the hard-coded password, two other vulnerabilities that allowed for this privilege escalation. Uh, and... Together, that just marked a real uh, bad vulnerability. But Cisco Talos researchers alerted Trend Micro. Trend Micro were able to send out an update to connected systems that helped fix that problem. So they were able to patch out those vulnerabilities. And the good news is that while the vulnerability could have potentially handed hackers access to affected systems, there were no attacks found in the wild. So it looks like this vulnerability was found and uh, and mitigated without 
anyone in the hacker group being aware of it. So no one was able to take advantage of it before that door was shut. So that's a good, good story there. All right, well, that's an example of an IoT device meant to secure your network and the device itself ends up having vulnerabilities in it. But what about a device that's meant to just keep you alive? That's a big old yikes. And yeah, back in 2017, CNN reported that the FDA discovered uh, that implantable cardiac devices from St. Jude's Medical had some vulnerabilities in them. And that means that devices that are intended to stimulate a person's heart so that it continues beating could possibly be hacked. And this is kind of getting into like science fiction dystopian horror story territory here. The FDA said that a hacker could use a transmitter that would normally perform a scan of cardiac devices, and it was intended to give physicians information about how a patient is doing remotely. But instead, the hacker could use that transmitter to potentially drain a cardiac implant's battery or change the pace of stimulation, which could obviously lead to disastrous results. Uh, St. Jude Medical swiftly got to work patching the vulnerabilities, So they fixed the problem, but when you're talking about devices, especially ones that have already been implanted in patients, these are devices that are meant to help keep people having a a healthy life. Well, stuff gets complicated. You can't just push out a firmware update to someone's heart. You know, if you have to reboot your router after a firmware update, that's usually not a big deal. At most, it's a minor inconvenience. But when you're talking about a device that regulates heartbeat, well, implementing a patch could cause an interruption of service. And in this case, that service can be critical. To that end, officials were urging caution to physicians before they uh, installed patches to patient cardiac implants because there's a risk that something could go wrong in that process, including the loss of functionality from the device. And that's clearly... Not what you don't want to create a medical emergency while you're trying to prevent a a hypothetical future one. So, yeah, that was a really bad uh, instance of vulnerabilities. It's legitimately terrifying. And it reminds us that while the Internet of Things vision has undeniable benefits, I mean, even in that case, right? A physician being able to monitor patients remotely, that's incredible. It, It could mean the difference between someone suffering a cardiac event and having it prevented. And that has a tremendous effect on that person's quality of life. So that is something to be wished for. That is something we should strive for. But we also have to keep in mind that whenever we're talking about connectivity, there are risks that come with that. And it means that we need to really search out vulnerabilities in these products before they get to the shipping process, which is easier said than done. Companies have limited resources. It is very difficult to suss out any and all vulnerabilities uh, in some cases. And when it's released to the world, then you've got the resources of the entire world that could potentially look into a product and find vulnerabilities. So I don't want to put a lot of blame and unfair burden on companies that have released things that have had vulnerabilities in them. Uh, In some cases, it's not even their fault. It's because they incorporated a component that that came from a different company, and that OEM company was the source of a vulnerability. But no matter what blame you want to place, the end result is that we need to be able to identify these quickly and address them and 
preferably prevent them from ever getting out there and making sure that the shipped product is as secure as possible so that we can enjoy those benefits without the risk of these security vulnerabilities. Um, there's some other examples we can talk about. You know, there was a, the example of hackers getting access to uh, IoT devices with TrendNet. This was a company that produces internet-connected security systems, ironically enough. Uh, they had this one webcam that they were uh, marketing over in the early 2010s. Um, they were marketing it as either a home security system or a baby monitoring system, but there was a major problem. And that was like essentially between 2010 and 2012, these specific web-based cameras would allow anyone who had the IP address for that camera to look at the feed. So that's it. All you needed was the IP address. If you had the IP address, you could see whatever that camera could see. And that enormous invasion of privacy, right? If someone gets hold of uh, of that IP address and they wouldn't normally have access to the camera, that's phenomenally bad, <laughs> right? Uh, but then also TrendNet was, had a really bad habit of doing things like transmitting user login credentials in plain text over the internet, which means anyone snooping on any of that communication would see plain text login credentials, uh, not, not a secure way of doing things. Um, the FTC brought an enforcement at action against TrendNet in 2013. The company paid out a settlement the following year, and TrendNet still operates to this day, but now they take the steps to mask all these things so that they are not uh, these massive security vulnerabilities. So they did take steps to address those problems and fix them in the future. But this is the sort of stuff we have to be aware of. You know, anytime you want to think about smart systems, whether you're talking about your home or an office or you're looking at smart connected vehicles, it's good to do the research to look into things like what does the security community say about this stuff? Are there any alerts about it? Should I be concerned before I connect it? If there are things like login credentials or, or network access features I need to know about, uh, are there steps I need to take in order to change default passwords? These are all important steps. And I know it sounds like a lot. And I know it also may sound like, well, what's the likelihood that I'm going to be targeted? But if we look back to that Mirai example, the Mirai malware and botnet, that was, you know, that doesn't mean that you were a target in a hacker's eye. It's not like the hacker saw you and said, oh, I'm going to see if this person's network security is up to speed. That was a malware that was automatically making computers scan for other devices that could potentially be compromised. When you've automated that and you've created a, a malware that spreads this way where it gets increasingly more powerful and more um, uh, prevalent in an area, it, it you don't need to be anyone special to get targeted. It just can happen. So... It's important to keep all that in mind whenever we're thinking about the Internet of Things. I I really like the vision of the Internet of Things. I like the potential benefits. But uh, I also worry about rushing into implementations without properly giving security and privacy uh, a lot of consideration. Okay, that wraps up this episode of uh, Tech Stuff. That's the show I'm doing right now, right? Yes, Tech Stuff. 
If you have suggestions for future topics or questions or anything like that, a couple of different ways you can get in touch with me. One is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. It's free to use. You can navigate over to tech stuff by typing that into the little search engine. Pop on over to the podcast page. You'll see that there is a microphone icon. If you hold that down, you can leave a message up to 30 seconds in length and let me know if you would like me to play it in a future episode. I don't have to. I'll only play it if you tell me to. Uh, but yeah, that's one way to ask questions. Another is to go on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, so you can use that to get in touch with me. A couple of you have been asking if I'm on Mastodon for Tech Stuff. I am not, not yet, but I will be looking into that this week to see if I can um, use that as another way of contacting me. One last thing, on Wednesday, we will be playing an episode of The Restless Ones here in the Tech Stuff feed. The Restless Ones is an interview show that I host where I talk to uh, leaders in technology departments and big companies. And um, it's a it's a, a fun show about leadership and technology and, uh, and the benefits of uh, networks. So I hope you will enjoy that. And just wanted to give a shout out so that way you're not surprised when it happens on Wednesday. It's totally planned, it's supposed to happen. That's it. I hope you're having a great start to your week so far, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, sleep tight stories.